He couldn't believe it. He could not believe what had just happened to him. Was this a real thing? I mean, three days in the belly of a whale? Can you imagine what it looked like? He lands on the ground, takes three skidding, bumpy halts on his rear end. There is seaweed in his hair. His mouth is parched, but his mind is clear. This was no accident. God had spoken to him, and he prayed in a way that he had never prayed before. You see, he was a desperate man. Jonah was a changed man. And this one thing was clear. He was getting a second chance. He didn't deserve it. He had blown it. In fact, when he sat in the belly of that whale, he thought, if just you would give me a chance, Lord, I will obey. If you would just show your compassion and your kindness, I'll do what you've asked me to do. Have you ever been there? Whatever that is in your life, that thing that has propelled you so far from God that you wonder, is there a way home? Is there ever going to be a chance to say you're sorry, to say I was wrong, to say would you forgive me? That's the place we find Jonah in chapter 3. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn there and take your notes, Jonah is about to do what God originally had asked him to do. And I want to ask you the question, is God indeed the God of the second chance? I believe you'll see in chapter 3 that he is the God of the second chance. And in fact, despite Jonah's stubbornness, Despite his disobedience, despite his unwillingness to do what God called him to do, God didn't give up on him. And in fact, God allows him to complete his original assignment. And isn't it good that God doesn't give up on us? That in our disobedience, in our stubbornness, that God gives us a second chance today. And so this gives us, this text gives us great insight in how to respond when you get a second chance. What does second chances, what do they look like? If you'll note on the screen behind me, we first of all see Jonah's commission. Now, you know, some of you are saying, this is kind of, Jonah is like schizophrenic or something, because which Jonah are we going to get, you know? Will the real Jonah stand up? In, in chapter one, if you want to kind of summarize it, will the real Jonah stand up? In the second chapter, will the real Jonah look up? In the third chapter, will the real Jonah speak up? And next week, Pastor Scott, will the real Jonah grow up? You see that he was the protesting uh, prophet in chapter 1. He's the praying prophet in chapter 2. Now he's going to become the preaching prophet in chapter 3. And next week, unfortunately, he relapses. He'll become the pouting prophet next week. And so... We want to look at this commission. Now, look at verses 1 through 4. That's the commission. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim 
uh, to its proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. Now, remember, Nineveh is the place he was supposed to go. Remember, the analogy, he was supposed to go to Compton, and he chose Honolulu, right? Although he had a little bumpy uh, ship ride along the way. Verse 3, so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Remember that word great, gadal? You have, a, you have in the first chapter that word great, the great storm, right? And uh, then the second chapter, we have the great fish, and now we have the great city. And it says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said eight words. This is his message, eight words. Get this. We're looking for some big Billy Graham evangelistic sermon. The buses will wait. You can come. No, look what it says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. 40 days, you're toast. Here's put it in the vernacular. Repent or you're going to hell. Are you kidding me? He doesn't talk about God's love, God's compassion, God's graciousness. We'll look at that in just a moment. But he gets a second chance, a new beginning to start over. And I got to ask us today, how many of us need that second chance? Just like Jonah needed the second chance. Spurgeon said it this way, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He who obeys God trusts God, and he who trusts God obeys God. Now, I want to show you that it really is a second chance, and I put right there in your notes, if you've got them there, look at chapter 1 and look at chapter 3. He gets the call from the, uh, God in chapter 1, then the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. The Gentile sailors are threatened with death by a storm. The Gentile Ninevites are threatened with destruction by God. The Phoenician sailors cry to God. The pagan Ninevites cry to God. God saves them from the storm, and then God saves them by relenting from destroying them. And so we see that God really does give Jonah a second chance. He's going to give Nineveh a chance. Now, it says it's an exceedingly great city. So maybe you can think of it this way. It's not just the city of L.A., but L.A. County. This is a 50-mile district that he's walking around. He could never walk the whole city. And it's interesting enough that this place, uh, uh, Nineveh, is likely to be the modern-day city of Mosul, the second uh, largest uh, city in Iraq. It's about 250 miles north of Baghdad. And interesting enough, this particular city was um, founded by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, who may have started the city and yet now had been taken over by the Assyrians. Now, it took three days, maybe he, preparations, and he walked around. Uh, but the bottom line is, there had to be, we think, there has to be more to this message, right? In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. I think it's a summary of the message. We don't know for sure, but it was simply that, that he didn't mention, doesn't see here in the text that he mentions forgiveness. He mentions judgment. Only eight words. And it seems like it's more about condemnation than compassion. And as I was looking at that, I said, it would have been nice because in modernity today, it's always nice to talk about the love of God, right? No one really wants to talk about the holiness of God or the judgment of God. It just doesn't play well. It doesn't play well here in, in the extended area of Hollywood, does it? We just want to sanitize the gospel. And here's what I found. When you only take one aspect of God's character, and that's all you emphasize, you're going to get lopsided in your theology. He is holy, he is just, he is jealous, 
and he is loving, and he is kind, and he is merciful. And we've got to keep those aspects of God's character in tension. Well, this one, we see kind of the holiness of God. The one thing that I think about this chapter, in fact, Pastor Scott and I were just mentioning this as I walked out, is doesn't this give you some confidence as an evangelist? He gives eight words, and we're about to see an entire city repents. That's unbelievable because sometimes as preachers, we feel like, I've got to just do all this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to do this. Sometimes God just does his thing in spite of us. Sometimes he's going to use you even though you're not very, very eloquent. This week we talk about Moses with the kids, and we, Moses was a stutterer, right? He couldn't get the words out. You talk about being intimidated. Sometimes you're just so tied up because you're saying, well, what am I going to say to these friends? What am I going to say to my neighbors? What am I going to say to my boss? And maybe you want to take the claim of Moses that you've never been eloquent, neither in recent history or in the future. And yet, Jonah just preached. Now, I want to take a couple observations from the text. Look at the significance of 40 days this is going to happen. It didn't say you have to do this right now and then you're done. God was going to give them 40 days to think about this. Now, Jonah did that presumably on the first few days, and they had some time to think about it. But think about 40 days throughout the Bible. There's 40 days of Noah, and then the floods came. Moses took 40 days to receive instructions about the tabernacle in Exodus 24. Jesus was tempted for 40 days, Mark chapter 1. If you go beyond just the idea of 40 days to 40, Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Forty stripes were given to those whose God-ordained penalty was uh, beating in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So there's significance of 40 days is throughout the Bible. When you see 40 days, something significant is going to happen by the end of that time. Now, why are they going to be destroyed? Because as we're looking at this, you're saying, look at Ninevites. We get it. They're the Assyrians. There's these hated people. They were jerks. They were mean. They were cruel. They were enemies. They were combatants in war. But what about the Ninevites in our life? Just I want you to think about who might be the Ninevites in our lives as we get a little farther in the text. But these Ninevites, the reason that we see in chapter 4 that Jonah didn't really want them to come to faith in Christ because they were Israel's enemies. You, if you look at the companion book to Jonah, that's the book of Nahum. And you've got to read those together in context. In Nahum, there's five reasons why uh, the Ninevites were being condemned, why they were going to be destroyed. They plotted evil in chapter 1, verse 11. They were cruel in war in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, especially how they treated prisoners of war. In chapter 3, the, uh, or they talk about their prostitution and witchcraft. And then also in chapter 3, verse 8, their wickedness and violence. And then lastly, that they exploited people in verse 16. There's a lot of reasons why they should be destroyed. There's a lot of reasons why they needed to repent. There's a lot of reasons why if you were their enemies, you wouldn't want them to repent. Who are those Ninevites in our lives? Who are those people in your life that if the truth be known, you're not really sure you want them to repent? I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I thought, Lord, why do you give us a text? You know, I don't have any enemy combatants in my life. Really? 
in junior high. He was the kid that made you feel stupid. He was the cool of the cool. And always make a little comment about what you didn't wear, how you weren't wearing it. Or in today's vernacular, you weren't rocking it. In high school, your enemy combatant, your Ninevite, might have been that person who gossiped about you, who said things that were so untrue and left you in a puddle of tears wondering whether you had a friend on the planet. And then it was in college. It was that first true love, or so you thought, who broke your heart, who maybe even stole your virginity. And then when you got older, it was that spouse who divorced you, who cheated on you, who wasn't faithful to you, and yet was the father or mother of your children, and you had to see them every other weekend and play nice in front of the kids. Or maybe it was that boss who said one thing out of one side of his mouth and was preparing to fire you the next week. You see, all of us have somebody in our life that's a Ninevite, someone that, if the truth be known, we're not so sure we want them to come to faith in Christ because that means they would be brothers or sisters. Think about this impossible situation. What if Trayvon Martin and his family were believers? What would their response have to be to George Zimmerman and his family? If you're Corey Tinboom and it's Nazi Germany and the Jews are being exterminated. Are the Ninevites those Nazi soldiers? You see, history reminds us there are plenty of people in our lives that if the truth be known, we're not exactly sure that we want grace to be extended to them. And that's why I said in two weeks ago that there's a bit of Jonah in all of us. But here's the good news. Look at this slide. Write this down, would you? God uses an unlikely candidate, that's Jonah, a foreign prophet, to bring an unpopular message, that's repent or be destroyed, to an uncivilized people, that's the Assyrians, and that brings with it an unbelievable result, mass repentance. Mass repentance. And so let's see what happens. That's the call. Let's look at Nineveh's confession in verses 5 through 9. And, it, you know, it's been a while since, I've, since we're going to read a chunk of Scripture. It's been a while since I've had you actually stand up. So would you just stand up as I just read this section of Scripture uh, for us in honor of God's Word? Look at these verses 5 through 9. Let me read it for you. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation that said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. 
Do not, them, do not let them eat or drink water. Verse 8. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. You can be seated. And so we see Nineveh's confession in verses 5 through 9. And I want you to know who starts the confession process. The second word, them the people. I believe revival always starts in the pew, not in the pulpit. He said, really, yeah, look at all the history of revivals in the last 300 years, the great Welsh revivals. It always begins with the masses, not because of Spurgeon's phenomenal preaching, not because there aren't great preachers preaching, but the people, it's a people movement, and they believed in God. This belief isn't just an intellectual belief. It begins to change the way they think, and it starts at the grassroots. And so I might ask the question, why did these guys repent? Those eight words weren't very compelling. They're not very convicting, other than you're going to be destroyed. That's a little motivating, right? You know, we don't appreciate guys like Jonathan Edwards anymore, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But so let me give you four. I'm going to put three on the screen. And then I, and as it always happens, I do extra thinking, and God says, no, you missed the most important one. But too bad this was already done. So I'm going to give you the fourth one, which is the best one and the most important one. Why'd they repent? First of all, Jonah's preaching. You say, seriously? Well, the king even repents. He's the governor. He's maybe the mayor of the city. He rises from his throne, and they believe in God. And so maybe it's no, uh, his preaching. Now, some think that it was, number two, Jonah's appearance. So think about this. If you've been in the belly of a whale for three days, those gastric juices are bleaching you. Now, I don't know who's the whitest person in the room. Let's find you. No, Okay. But think about being bleached white because your, and your skin is blotchy. Uh, your breath is, oh, talk about halitosis. Oh, my goodness. And he's preaching. He looks like death warmed over. He's talking about death. And he's saying, you got to repent. So maybe it's the way he looks. Uh, he would have been one scary dude. I would think he's kind of like the Grim Reaper meets uh, like Freddy Krueger, maybe. I'm not sure. But it's, it's, a, it's a scary potential sight. Thirdly, their history might have been why um, they repented, because there had been some other calamities. You'd think a nation would figure it out. There's enough stuff coming down the pike through history that maybe you better change your wicked ways. There were severe plagues in 765 and 759 B.C. There was a total eclipse of the sun in 763 B.C. And so oftentimes superstitious nations would attach natural occurrences in, in the earth and say, oh, God is punishing us. This drought is from God. But I'll give you the most important reason that should have been there, number one. You know why they repented? Because God is sovereign. Write that one out. God is sovereign. The reason they repented is because God wanted them to. Really, John? It's that simple? Yeah. God's in charge. I'm not. And neither are you. And so when we share the gospel... We got to remember it's God through His Holy Spirit that brings people to repentance. Now, He wasn't very kind, and that's why I'm glad we have God's complete Word of God because it says also in the Scriptures, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So ultimately, this warning is an act of God's kindness and compassion so that they don't 
end up destroyed. So what does true repentance look like? Because if we're looking at this text, for us as believers, is there a parallel? Now, I want to suggest the Ninevites are total anti-non-Christian worldview is far from uh, theocentric. And so you say, can we draw from this text principles for our own repentance? I think we can, but we need to take it at two different levels. And so for people who are far from God, this is a great uh, kind of five-step process that helps people get a focus on what they really need to do if they're going to do business with God. But more likely for some of us, a little Nineveh has creeped into our own souls, even as believers. And we have this secret sin that's hidden in this locked closet that's in the basement of our lives that oftentimes God is saying, are you listening? And so, what does that look like for us today? I want to suggest five things. First of all, it says that they fasted. Now, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, believed that fasting was useful in times of danger so that the gods, little g, could be called on on a full-time basis to intervene until the danger passed. And notice for them, it was no food, no drink. They were prepared to do that. Now, we don't know when in those 40 days they finally had this mass revival, but it would have been a miracle had they gone more than a few days, maybe even a week without water, without dying. And if any of you have ever fasted, you know how difficult it is, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise by a show of hands, but I have done some fasting in my life, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Over the last 10 years, I've been involved in two 40-day fasts where all I drank was liquids. Now, I've got to tell you why we don't make it past day one when we're fasting. It's a really simple concept. I'm hungry, right? And and we get all cranky, and we get headaches, and we have this caffeine addiction, and there's all kinds of reasons why the first three days are a living hell. And then by day five, if you ever fasted more than a a couple hours or a couple of days, your hunger goes away. And during day five to 35, it's the most unbelievable thing that you'll ever experience because everything in your senses is on high alert. Every sin in your life comes bubbling to the surface. Everything that you've been wrestling with, God says, hey, are you going to deal with that? You're going to deal with that? You're going to deal with that? You're going to deal with that? And it's like yellow blinking lights, red lights are going off spiritually saying, man, I am far from God. And if you do what I did is during those meal times, instead of of eating, I was praying, not every day of those 40 days. I'll be honest, the first few days, it was just keeping my mind off of wanting to eat. But as you go through fasting, and you do it for spiritual reasons, what happens is your spiritual sentences, senses are heightened. And just as your body purges physically the toxins in your body when you're fasting... So spiritually, your sins are purged because you become accustomed and accommodating to those areas of compromise in your life. And when you're fasting, all that gets brought up in full panoramic view for you to ponder and to reflect on. 
Now, I got to tell you, fasting for the purpose of atoning for your sins doesn't work. This isn't medieval asceticism where we're, we're kind of uh, doing sin management so that we can atone for our sins. That's not what I'm talking about. So if you write next to the word fasting, write the word confession. The symbol for us is confession and recognition. Secondly, there was sackcloth, this coarse, ugly, burlap, uncomfortable wear kind of thing. And it's so interesting. The Ninevites don't know the Bible at all. They don't know God the way we would know him. And they're just for a double measure. They're making all the animals wear burlap and sackcloth. I think that's pretty funny. They're going to wear it, but I'm making sure every animal's wearing it too, just in case, just covering the bases here. Now, I wonder, and this is another one of those questions we get to Information Central in heaven, could there have been oral tradition all the way back from Moses? Remember the 10 plagues? Who knows? Maybe they know through oral tradition, man, when Yahweh God gets involved, people die, things die, animals die, flies come, hail goes. It's a, it's a, it's a bad deal, and so they're not taking anything to chance. Now, some would say, seriously, today... Does true revival repentance means I got to wear really tight, you know, burlap wearing cloth clothes? No, I don't think so. But I do think what happens is by wearing those clothes, it reminds us that this world is not our home. It's easy to live in comfort in the United States. And these pleasures, these creature pleasures that we enjoy, all uh, sometimes kind of elevate in importance. So maybe the sackcloth just reminds us that this world is not our home. And it reminds us that we're really nothing in light of eternity. By the way, I don't think wearing sackcloth is really a fashion statement. I don't think we should all, you know, go get a burlap bag and, and fashion our little tunic with it. So sackcloth really stands more for humility Confession, humility. Thirdly, they sat in the dust, verse 6. When you're sitting, you have time to contemplate, don't you? Sometimes when you're sitting, that's the one time God could get your attention because we are busy, busy people. I think one of the things that keep us, keeps us from revival and true repentance in the U.S. church today is we're just too busy. Doesn't God have a funny way of slowing us down? I was talking to one of you this week, and you said something you had no idea I was going to put in the sermon. They were, she was telling me that when she is in pain, God usually is reminding her that she ought to be praying about somebody or something. It's not even for her. It's, about, it's a little trigger saying, I've got to be praying about this. That's an interesting thought. If I prayed for someone else every time I was in pain, you would all be healed right now because... <laughs> I am in a lot of pain. I'm getting older. This, is, this, is a, this world reminds us. Pain reminds us this world isn't our home. My knee hurts. My hip hurts. My golf game stinks. I'm much, much better yesterday, by the way, Doug. Thank you for praying. You felt my pain. And so that idea of sitting there listening to God, solitude puts life in perspective. I'm not going to embarrass him, but... Casey, didn't you have a different plan for what your life was supposed to be like this week? Didn't involve immediate emergency knee surgery with an infection you didn't even know you had? Was that part of your plan? Kind of slowed you down. 
Wait, we got a, a news break right here in front row. Yes, God did speak to Casey. It slowed him down. He had all kinds of plans, good things for what God wanted to do with him this week. And on Monday, he went down, and all kinds of other people had to step up. And I don't know if it's your fault, but that's why I became Sheriff John, I think. Sheriff John Sunday, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. And so we sit and we listen and we're reminded that people and power and possessions and prestige and all that, that pales in insignificance, doesn't it? And so when we sit, it's about dependence, confession, humility, dependence. When's the last time you just reflected? I mean, really? God alone. For some of you, you go, I would have to ship off all my kids and my spouse. Maybe I can get alone. You've got to find that quiet place in your life. Most of the days I walk with my wife when we're really disciplined and we do our prayer walking. Today I walked by myself. Put the headphones on, listened to little Chris Tomlin, prayed, tried not to be rude to every neighbor on the face of the planet that was walking their dog. Hi. Hi. I'm trying to... Can't you see I'm trying to be alone here? I don't want to talk to your dog. No, that's not... But you know, when I'm alone and walking and reflecting, God speaks to me. You go, oh, come on now, pastor. Do, 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 do. It's the twilight zone. Pastor John believes that God speaks to him. Seriously? Seriously. But I'm so busy doing my thing all the time that it's a wonder that God can get an edge, a word in edgewise because I'm just going all the time. I'm so neurotic, I sometimes keep a three-by-five card next to my bedside at night in case I forget something so I can write it down. You're going, if you use Siri, it would be a lot easier. Just talk into the phone, right? <laughs> and so maybe we need to slow down and sit. Number four, repentance involved calling urgently to God, verse 8, admitting you need Him. It's not a complacent approach. It's urgent. It's now. i got to do something. Jeremiah 33.3, write this one down. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And so that fourth piece, that calling on God, it's prayer. It's prayer. And number five, give up your evil ways. I believe that true repentance involves changed behavior. True repentance involves changed behavior. That's why I'm always a little suspect about Hollywood confessions and rock star salvation moments. I just want to see what does the corresponding next several months and years do in terms of their behavior and their choices. What a great article if you're a sports fan and had watched Daryl Strawberry struggle mightily as a baseball player. And over the last few years, he's come to faith in Christ, and he's now actually preaching, and he doesn't have any of that past stuff. And there was just a great article about how his entire life's focus has changed. 
What is it we need to give up? What is it that needs to change in our life? You see, the evidence of contrition is behavior that reflects the priorities that you say are important. And so we can talk all the God talk we want, but in the end, is Jesus Christ Lord of all if He doesn't start with your pocketbook or with your mouth or in your thinking or in how you treat other people? Now, for some of you, that is as simple as you are irritated most of your life with the general population on planet earth. Now think about that. We're Christ followers and yet we're irritated about way they are too slow or they're too fast on the freeway. For some of you go, never too fast on the freeway. Never, right? For some of us, we act as if God needs to work on everybody else and they need forgiveness, but we, we're, we're pretty good. In fact, for some of us, we kind of think, we never say it out loud, God is lucky to have me on his team. I'm on the A team and God is lucky to have me. Mm. Really? I don't know. I think, first of all, I don't really believe in luck. I believe in providence, just clarifying that. I'm just so glad that I get to stand here declare His truth, knowing full well that I, of all people, of all people, need a second chance. Look, I'm not rubbing this in your nose like, yeah, this is for all of you here this week. You know the problem with preaching God's Word is if you're listening, it's a horrible week for you. I mean, think about it. This is a text that I'm thinking, this has to do with the and the Syrians and this and that. And yet God is just bringing to my attention those things where maybe I need to repent. I need to say, God, take this. And so ultimately, verse 10, we see God's compassion. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked ways, there's some evidence there, Then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Now, I believe in God's sovereignty, and I believe prayer changes things. You want tension in your life? God is sovereign, and your prayer changes things. God relented. Now, did He change His mind? Well, or did he just know that they would because they would? And we can argue the chess match here. But the bottom line is God showed compassion. And I want to describe that in three ways. First of all, God's unmerited mercy. God saw saw their deeds. He relented. He showed compassion on Nineveh. He showed unmerited mercy. This is not the first time. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, it says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that was planned. The one that we like to quote on National Day of Prayer every May is from 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. 
Then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. If you're not praying for our town, for our city, for our governor, for our state, for our nation, for our president, we're missing the boat, Christian. We need to repent. Repentance starts with us, not the bad guys. It starts with us. Remember, Second Chronicles, if my people, those are the God's chosen people got to do it, how about us? And so God's unmerited mercy. Secondly, we see God's unconditional love. I just want to remind you, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. But the one that's most powerful for me is Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. We do nothing to deserve it. And then lastly, we see God's unfathomable forgiveness. Look how God treats us. He lavishes us with love, His mercy, His grace. And that's why this whole study has been about ships and storms, about mercy and grace, not punishment and, and, and finger-pointing. Remember from week one, ships are always those things that take us away from God. You can always find a ship taking you away from the Lord. But thank goodness He sends the storms into our lives to remind us that we need Him, His unmerited mercy, His unconditional love, His unfathomable forgiveness. So the question I'd ask you today is, why do we not receive that forgiveness? I'm going to have Chad come, and, and I want to think out loud with you for a second. Why don't we receive that forgiveness? Let me, let me give you three lies you believe about forgiveness. Number one, we believe that the magnitude of our sin is beyond the scope of His forgiveness. Some of you think, I've blown it so bad. How could He ever forgive me? Number two, we believe that, that, that God couldn't forgive me because I failed too many times. Not just the enormity of the sin, but the repetition of that sin. Then ultimately, you're begging God to forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. Three lies. And so in the end, who do you need to forgive? Who are the Ninevites in your life? We've looked at that. But here's the big principle as we get to the Jesus comparison. Everyone matters to God. Everyone matters to God, even your enemies. You see, in the Jesus comparison, we saw that Jonah, he disobeyed. He did not want to go. But in the gospel, Jesus is the one who's obedient unto death. In Jonah, he was willing to die as the guilty one for the sake of the innocent of the boat. But Jesus is willing to die as the innocent one for the sake of the guilty of the earth. The gospel is so transparent if you just look at this comparison. Jonah spent three nights in the belly of a whale and had a type of resurrection. Jesus died and spent three nights in the tomb and resurrected on the third day. Jonah preached repentance to Nineveh, and they repented. Jesus preached forgiveness and repentance, and today we must respond. We must respond. See, there's Jonah in all of us, right? What is it? that God's telling you today, would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
some of you today stumbled into this church because your kids go to VBS. You're not a church-going kind of person. And you're going, wow, I need Jesus. I need to repent. I don't know the Lord. My kids do, but I don't. And I want to pray right now if you would like to give Jesus, just like I prayed with kids this week, your life, then you can pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I need you. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Oh, Lord, come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Extend your grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and I freely accept it, even though I know I don't deserve it. And then, Lord, help me to become a Christ follower so I live as you've called me to live. If you prayed that prayer today, you've gone from death into life. And it's not my message, it's not my preaching, it's all about God calling you. So if you've prayed that prayer, I'm not going to make you walk this aisle, but I'd like you to talk to Pastor Scott or one of our elders and say, I prayed that prayer. More likely than not, there are some of you today that are sitting in this room and you are a Christian. You have asked Jesus to be your Savior. But there's something about this message that's troubling to you. Because there's someone in your life that's a thorn in your flesh. They are your Ninevite. They are, there's that person that, oh, Lord, really, do I need to forgive them? Do I need to love them the way you're calling me to love them? Because it's not natural. It's not easy. It's hard. They've done something that's wounded you badly. But if you're going to be a Christ follower, he's asking you to do the hard thing today. And if you're in that boat, would you look up at me and say, yep, I got somebody in mind. I got to let go of this. I've got to forgive someone, okay? I'm not going to make you come forward. Okay, okay, okay. Let me see your eyes. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Way in the back. Someone you've got to let go of it. Lord, help us let go of that. And then more importantly, let us be that beacon of light, that ray of hope, that baton of love to bring the message of the gospel to them. That enemy, that one who hurt us, that one who destroyed us. Lord, work on my attitude. Work on my busyness. Work on my own self-importance. Deal with my self-indulgence. Crush my pride. Help me to yield to you. Help me to become the man that you've called me to be. And if you're a woman, God, help the women in our church to be all that you've called them to be. Lord, and I confess to you, I need you. I can't do this Christian life on my own. Lord, I see Jonah in my own life, and I repent of it. And I thank you that you give me a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. Oh, Lord, I love you, and I entrust my life into your hands. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Lord, here we stand. We stand before you. In all sincerity, Lord, we are just grateful for the second chances that you've given all of us. And so we go in that freedom today with hearts full of mercy and forgiveness that you've modeled for us. And so we extend that to all we come in contact today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like prayer, the elders will be up here. Guests, we'll see you in for lunch in just a little bit. Thank you.